Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the second event of our lecture series, Marriage and the Family, today. This fall, the Church will experience two significant events related to marriage and the family. In just a few weeks, Philadelphia will host the World Meeting of Families. Then in October, the 14th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops on the Family will convene in Rome. In recognition of this important time in the Church, We've been gathering for a three-part lecture series to explore the most critical issues for marriage and family life today. Last week, we explored the pastoral and doctrinal questions surrounding the indissolubility of marriage. This evening, we will discuss children, specifically looking at the effects that artificial reproductive technologies and divorce have on them. The final event next week on September 17th will be a conversation on gender and homosexuality. Here in Washington, we are so blessed to have the John Paul II Institute a wealth of philosophers and theologians who are thinking through the essential questions of marriage and family. Faculty members from the John Paul II Institute are the featured speakers in our lecture series. Tonight, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Margaret McCarthy and Professor Michael Hanby. Professor McCarthy received her doctoral degree in theology at the pontifical John Paul II Institute at the Lateran University in Rome. Since then, her teaching and writing has focused on various themes belonging to theological anthropology, especially relative to the question of sexual difference. In addition to teaching at, John, at the John Paul II Institute, she serves as the director of the Center for Cultural and Pastoral Research at the John Paul II Institute. Further, Professor McCarthy is on the editorial board of Communio Magazine. Professor Hanby received his doctoral degree from the University of Virginia. Before joining the John Paul II Institute, he was previously assistant professor of theology at Baylor University and a fellow in the humanities at Villanova University. Professor Hanby is author of No God, No Science, Theology, Cosmology, Biology, which reassesses the relationship between the doctrine of creation, Darwinian evolutionary biology, and science more generally. He is also author of Augustine and Modernity. He has contributed chapters to a number of volumes and is also author of nu numerous articles. This evening, we'll begin with remarks from Professor McCarthy. Before we begin, I invite you all to follow us on Twitter at CICDC with the hashtag marriage today. Please help me to welcome our speakers. Evening, good evening. Let me begin with one caveat, apropos of the sensitivity of this topic. So one caveat, we are all um, literally speaking tied up or caught up in the, in the problem of divorce, either being children of divorce, divorced, or knowing close relatives who are. But in a more universal sense, and the sense that I really want to address tonight, we're caught up in a logic of divorce. And I hope that um, um, we can see that this topic really pertains to all of us, uh, again, both at a literal level, but also at a deeper logical level. The child has become the primary battlefield of the debates over marriage. We are constantly defending our views about marriage on the basis of how they affect children even and especially after decades of insisting to ourselves that children are not an essential ingredient of marriage, beginning with the advent of the companionate marriage, together with the wide acceptance of contraception, and ending most recently with the invention of same-sex marriage, which is, in principle, incapable of even generating them. Children are inevitably the weather vane of marriage, and it is right that they should be. Marriage laws exist in the first place, beginning with the Code of Hammurabi, to secure the link between children and their actual parents, especially their fathers. 
So now, even as we have altogether disassociated, culturally and legally speaking, the generation of children from the definition of marriage, we still use arguments about the welfare of children to defend this new definition. Most recently, the case has been made that children in same-sex arrangements are no worse off than their counterparts. Then there was a stability argument made in defense of the same-sex same -sex marriage. Children in such arrangements were more stable if their parents were married. It should not be surprising that cases made to support the idea that children are indifferent to whether or not they are raised by their actual parents, the ones on whom their very existence depends, or most resembling them in the case of their death or severe neglect or abuse, seemed forced and bent on arriving at, an, at the inevitable conclusion with the help of self-selecting participants, for example, especially when other studies reaching the opposite conclusion were shot down so quickly before the ink was even dry on them. But this is another topic for next week. But it is a rerun, though with important differences. We have already been there with divorce. Children have been used before to justify an arrangement thought to be a necessary and unquestioned bastion of liberalism. And since what just happened to marriage legally was in many respects the cashing in of the blank check we wrote when we accepted no-fault divorce, we should consider what divorce has taught us about the child and what the child of divorce has taught us about marriage now that we have just cashed in. What has div divorce taught us about the child? More deeply, since the child is where all of us begin, what has it taught us about our own humanity? And what does the child of divorce teach us about marriage, about the nature of love, the truth, and the depth of the desire of our hearts? As Benedict XVI said, the family is about man himself, about what he is, and what it takes to be authentically human. Let us begin, however, by saying something about the odds against even saying, even thinking, anything negative about divorce. And of course, we cannot avoid having an eye to the newer arrangement. However much one might have a basic sense that divorce is a bad thing, generally speaking, that commitments are commitments, and that, well, virtually every, virtually no children we know raised in such arrangements were made better by them. It is almost a matter of our public creed that divorce should be readily available, even if we don't personally agree with it, according to our narrow faith traditions and their inaccessible reasons. The reason for this can be given in a nutshell in the famous statement made by Justice Kennedy years ago that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, no less. How can it be that creatures who, having entered marriage freely, consenting adults that they were, could not be permitted to leave it just as freely when finding it to be an impediment to all of those pursuits to which they have that right? However much, again, this goes against our common sense, our experience and observation, and even our tiny faith traditions, there is a public creed to which everything must be subordinated, including marriage. The self-defining goals of rights-bearing individuals are sacred and must be protected at all cost. Indeed, as Wendell Berry has perceptively noted, marriage is subordinated to our sacred creed even for the consenting adults still in it. 
Married people today, he says, are divorced in their marriages. I quote, marriage in what is evidently its most popular version is now on the one hand an intimate relationship involving ideally two successful careerists in the same bed and on the other hand a sort of private political system in which rights and interests must be constantly asserted and defended. Marriage in other words has now taken the form of divorce, a prolonged and impassioned negotiation as to how things shall be divided. During their understandably tempor temporary association, the married couple will typically consume a large quantity of merchandise and a large portion of each other." Unquote. Given this cultural background, naturally, if marriage had to be subordinated to the two consenting adults in it, defending their rights and interests in their pursuit of happiness, so did their children. Enter the good divorce. This is the reason for the invention of the good divorce. In a nutshell, that doctrine held that a divorce, quote, was better than a bad, a good divorce was better than a bad marriage for children, provided the divorce was a good one. One in which parents refrained from any public conflict and divided their children's time and affection equally. As for any negative effects of having parents in two different places, diminished resources, both economic and personal. These, it was said, these could be minimized by remedial social capital through social programs, after-school care, homework assistance, mentoring, and the like. Such was the doctrine which served to clear the collective conscience of a society built around the free, unimpeded behavior of consenting adults in pursuit of fulfillment allaying its fears that all of the tying and untying of marital knots might not in the be, be in the best interests of their children or even of themselves. And such was the doctrine which accompanied and fueled a whole divorce culture with its scores of divorce lawyers and social workers. What mattered, everyone told themselves, was the quality of the divorce, not the divorce itself. This, again, had to be the case since it was in function of protecting the behavior of consenting adults in pursuit of their own happiness as they defined it. As for children, they were told that they were better off in a good divorce than in a bad marriage, that having two families to love them instead of just one might even be better. And what could these children say? So delicate was their situation. They could hardly say otherwise. But eventually, decades later, they did begin to say otherwise. And we learned from them what we might have suspected had common sense been allowed to surface. What exactly did we learn? Even if in the good cases, these children succeeded in school, they were able to get into college and make a lot of money. The statistically measurable markers by which success of such children had been determined, even if in the good cases they had done all this, they felt that they had been dealt a deep blow at the core of their being. In her groundbreaking book, Elizabeth Marquardt speaks about being caught between two worlds by the worlds who, as one gave the child, who gave the child its very life and identity, putting its united mark on the smallest detail of its physiology and personality. The child of divorced parents, says Marquardt, is not only standing between these world, worlds 
or going back and forth between them, even literally each weekend. She is split down the middle, finding in herself traits of one or the other parent, traits which often have to be silenced or muted depending on which parent one is visiting. In the same vein, Andrew Root in his book on the children of divorce speaks about the loss of ontological security since the child of divorce has had the ground on which he had been thrust into the world pulled out from under him. What is more, the goodness of his being is put into question, he says Root, when the goodness of the unity which, which put his being into existence is positively denied and then dismantled. Indeed, since Root, says Root, divorce, unlike the death of parents, quote, questions if the child ever should have been at all, since the divorced parents cannot but wish that they had never married. Simply put, since they had been put into being by the unity of their parents, the undoing of that unity struck a blow at the level of their very being, good divorce or bad divorce, and there was no remedial capital for that. However much any of that might be useful, it didn't address the nature of the problem, which had gone up to then misdiagnosed. It is not surprising then that the mere acknowledgement of what was ultimately at stake in divorce for children of divorce offered a great source of relief for the generations whose experiences had long been suppressed and managed by the happy talk about their parents' good divorces. More than just personal relief, this breakthrough through the duct tape of happy talk is the technical term, by the way, that people use, happy talk about good divorce in literature, especially for young children. More than just relief, these adult children of divorce were able to see something that we had lost sight of or had, in any event, not been allowed to see. They remind us of what the Canadian sociologist and philosopher George Grant said about the experience of deprivation as a way back to those things we have lost sight of or not been allowed to see. Quote, any intimations of authentic deprival are precious because they are the ways through which intimations of good, unthinkable in public terms, may yet appear to us." Unquote. Having been brought up with an experience of deprivation, the deprivation of parents united, these children, now as adults, could see intimations of good, unthinkable in public terms. And through them, it has now become possible to really look at things to see things. What exactly? In the first place, children of divorce allow us to reassess our assumptions about what it is we most like about ourselves. If children of divorce aren't simply okay in the face of the will to destruction of what brought them into being in the first place, the question about just how much of what we are is tied to what gave us to ourselves is inevitably raised. We are used to thinking that our origin is a matter of indifference to us, even problematic, especially for our autonomy. And that what is most important is what we make of ourselves or how we reconceive ourselves. We have been used to our own rootlessness for a long time now. In, indeed, it is, as many hold, the fundamental building block of the modern selves that we are and the kind of polity to which we belong. John Locke founded the new political order and its citizen precisely on a new reading of the relation between the child and his parents. Adam, said Locke, commenting on Genesis, did not have the misfortune of being born. He was capable from the first instance of being able to provide for his own support and preservation and govern his action. 
The suspicion of fatherhood is a characteristic feature of maternity in its many forms. You could speak of Rousseau's famous pupil, Emile, whose Bible was Robinson Crusoe, the story of an orphaned child who had become learned in the art of self-sufficiency. Emile, as Alan Bloom, the translator of Rousseau, says, cares no more for his father than his dog. Then, too, Nietzsche was no closer than his liberal counterparts to looking positively at dependence, even when, especially when, he had the child represent the epitome of man. But his child is a child precisely as one who starts over from the beginning, as one who no longer is encumbered by the values he encounters and who now bestows them on himself and creates them. Thus, it has been said that modernity's ideal child underlying all of its variations, liberal and otherwise, is the prodigal child, or using more current psychological language, the child with attachment disorder. <coughs> the suspicion of one's origins, especially one's father, is not, of course, simply a modern one. It is ancient and needs no more justification than the universal experience we all have of conflict between the generations. The Judeo-Christian tradition takes the suspicion all the way back to just short of the beginning, to the first sin in the Garden of Eden, where the tempter suggested to Eve a suspicion of the goodness about God the Father. But the animosity between the generations was not, according to, generation, uh, to Genesis, the first word nor the last. It would be modernity's distinct privilege to make it so, anchoring it, anchoring it in nature itself. Modernity would habituate us to the idea that the common experiences of alienation one has with one's closest relations, prodigal sons and daughters, neglectful parents, divorced parents, are, are natural. And that in the end, we don't really belong to anyone and that no one really belongs to us. In sum, we have come to think that the tenuousness of these relations are as they should be. Yet is this true? The child of divorce in his intransigent desire for the unity of his parents knows this is not the case. And he or she is the evidence by way of the experience of deprivation that in the end, we are not simply what we make ourselves to be, that at the core of our being is a gift. We have been given to ourselves. What is more, the child of divorce being forced to desire more the good origin of his or her being has also begun to ask about what stands behind his or her parents the origin of origins. There is a persistent question about God the Father in adult children of divorce, though it's not all positive, as you can imagine. The break in their parents' unity has, in a way, opened many of them up to, to this. As the psalmist says, deep calls unto deep. And it ought to for us. We are all, after all, children of divorce, not only because we are part of a culture which practices divorce so widely and prepares young people for it, but also because there's no one of us who does not suffer from a crack in the unity of his or her parents and who does not inflict the same on his or her children. Children of divorce then are for all of us a voice, a voice crying in the wilderness, pointing us to our need to recover our deepest origin in God the Father. Here we can say that well, divorce is, 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 is a serious violence done to children because it, it puts into question the goodness of the father. It's also because parents are the image of God the Father that's not ultimately tragic. So that's an important point to make. Finally, what does the children tell us about marriage? What does the child tell us about marriage? 
Just as the child speaks eloquently about the nature of our humanity, especially after being subjected to social experiments, so does he or she speak to the question about the nature of marriage itself, the adults in it, and the young people being prepared for it, what they most deeply desire in sexual desire, since sex is willy-nilly tied up with the potential to generate the child. Above all, the child of divorce calls into question the companionate marriage based on immediate and perpetual satisfaction, immediate satisfaction, and the choice of the consenting adults who must always be allowed to renegotiate their relationships if they no longer satisfy. If, as Andrew Root suggests, the child is, in his very being, the fruit of the unity of his parents and cannot therefore even remove himself from it, then can that unity which generates him be so negotiable? Quote, what do you do, says Root, when the self-fulfillment of mother and father requires the dissolving of a marriage, but the security and self-fulfillment of the child depends upon its continuation? If, moreover, the, the relation between the child and his or her parents is not one of choice from the beginning, then perhaps the very relation which has the capacity to put the child into existence is not simply a matter of choice either, simply. Children are the signposts of the parents of their parents' unity, often nagging signposts in many cases. In being so, they remind their parents of the depth of the love they were caught up in when they were caught up with each other in the beginning. Because the child in its very being is the going beyond oneself of love. Love is the affirmation of another and then another, a satisfaction and happiness by all means, but not on one's own terms. And love is also the desire for the forever. Every love worth its name implies it, however incapable we are of fulfilling it. Plato spoke of love as a generation because the child is the fruit of a desire that wishes the beloved to be forever. But the child, of course, is only a glimpse of an even greater beyond oneself, which every lover is however unaware seeking, and a greater f forever without which all the feeble promises we make could never possibly be fulfilled? That's another question. By insisting then on the inalienable, inalienable link between themselves and the marriage of their parents, then a whole generation of adult children of divorce have opened up for us what it is that we mean when we say to each other, I love you, but also what it means to be free, to be fulfilled, to be happy. We might know here that in doing this, they have also allowed us to see what we have recently become blind to the simple fact of sexual difference, without which there's no going beyond oneself and no forever. Let me conclude simply by citing Benedict uh, XVI, who facing the question of divorce, among other things, showed how much the question of the family raised basic questions about the nature of our humanity. Can one bind oneself for a lifetime? Does this correspond to man's nature? Does it not contradict his freedom in the scope of his self-realization? Does man become himself by living for himself alone and only entering into relationships with others when he can break them off again at any time? Is lifelong commitment antithetical to freedom? Is commitment also worth suffering for? Man's refusal to make any commitment, which is becoming increasingly widespread as a result of a false understanding of freedom and self-realization, as well as the, as the desire to escape suffering, means that man remains closed in on himself and keeps his eye ultimately for himself without really rising above it. Yet only in self-giving does man find himself 
and only by opening himself to the other, to others, to children, to the family, only by letting himself be changed through suffering does he discover the breadth of his humanity. And showing what is at stake with the family, Benedict then says, when such commitment is repudiated, the key figures of human existence likewise vanish. Father, mother, child, essential elements of the experience of being human are lost. No small thing. In a time and place where certain things are unthinkable and now unspeakable, we can be grateful for witnesses to the experience of deprivation and hope for a greater Christian witness to a more human way. As Pope Francis told thousands of young people in Brazil, today there are those who say that marriage is out of fashion. They say that it's not worth making a lifelong commitment, making a definitive decision forever, because we do not know what tomorrow will bring. I ask you instead to be revolutionaries. I ask you to swim against the tide. Yes, I'm asking you to rebel against this culture that sees everything as temporary and that ultimately believes you are incapable of commitment that believes you are incapable of love. Margie, let me just say thank you to Emily and the, the Catholic Information Center for having us here. It's a, real, it's a real pleasure. Our culture has apparently made its peace with assisted reproductive technologies, which are now responsible for the birth of some four million children worldwide. This piece is premised upon the assumption that these technologies raise no fundamental questions about the meaning of the human being, that how we are conceived and by whom are accidental matters with no great consequence for the meaning of personal identity, social solidarity, or human flourishing. One indication that this premise is a lie is the fact that the subject of ARTs is so difficult to talk about. Type what to tell children born from IVF into Google and you enter into a sad world of anxiety, confusion, and shame. The questions multiply exponentially and become all the more unanswerable the more deeply one moves into the many possibilities that ARTs open up, possibilities that were heretofore the stuff of science fiction. What do you tell a child who was frozen in cryopreservation so that his twin, who is now two years older than he, could be born first? How do you tell a child that she was the lucky one who was selected for her healthy genetic profile or her gender from among her five embryonic siblings? What do you say to the donor-conceived child of two women who does not even have a bad father, according to the law, when he asks who his father is? Is it wrong for him to ask this question? What do you say to the child of two men, an egg donor and a, gest and a gestational surrogate, when she asks, who is my mother? Thanks to the wonders of, of modern biotechnology, it is now possible for the first time in human history to produce people, ontological orphans, if you will, for whom there is no obvious or natural answer to that question. Such questions are unanswerable because they are almost unimaginable, a frightening indication that technology has increased our power to act well beyond our power to think and perhaps beyond our power to control. And yet most of us already inhabit this brave new world in some form or fashion. We all know and love children conceived by these means. 
We all know friends and family who have taken recourse to ARTs in their desperation to have a child. Perhaps some of us here may have done so. And whenever I write or speak about this topic, something which I never really set out to do and which I do not enjoy, I always wonder whether I might be speaking to someone conceived through ARTs and whether they will perceive my remarks as cruel or as questioning their humanity. So I want to begin this lecture, therefore, by saying two things that should go without saying. First, if, as the Catholic faith teaches, the human person is a child and a child is a gift, not just in its origins, but in its very ontological structure, then no human act, no human intervention in the genesis of the child can erase this fundamental gift character. There can be no true ontological orphans because there is no one who does not have God for a father. So a child conceived through IVF or ISCI is no less human, no less a child, no less a gift, and thus no less worthy of his life or of love than a child conceived through natural procreation. Nor should we doubt, or do I want to suggest, that parents who resort to ARTs do not love their children. Indeed, their willingness to submit themselves to the great expense, the anxiety, and the indignity of these procedures can be seen as a sign of their great willingness to sacrifice and to suffer on the child's behalf. Moreover, the desire of a couple for a child is a good and natural thing, one of the best of things. And the anguish and desperation of infertility, which often drives people to ARTs, is a great burden to suffer. However critical we may be of assisted reproductive technologies, we can never forget the terrible suffering that makes them such a temptation in the first place. All of this suffering, and there's a great deal of it to go around, whether this technology succeeds or whether it fails create an enormous inducement not to think deeply about the meaning of ARTs, to accept the gentleman's agreement of silence that undergirds this peace, now enforced by the legal fiction of same-sex marriage which enshrines the underlying philosophical and anthropological assumptions of ARTs into law. This settlement is very tempting considering how close this cuts to human identity and to so much that we hold dear but it is nevertheless a bargain that we can ill afford. For in saying yes to ARTs, our culture has said yes to much more than it originally bargained for. ARTs have given us a world in which it is now normal for thousands upon thousands of so-called spare embryos to be frozen away in cryopreservation, awaiting a tenuous fate. ARTs are the sine qua non for embryonic stem cell research, germline manipulation, and a host of other brave new eugenical fantasies dreamed up both in private biotech ventures around the world and in leading American universities such as Harvard, Princeton, and UCLA. ARTs are the condition of possibility for the invention of same-sex marriage, without which it would have remained unimaginable, and for contemporary efforts to redefine the family independent of sex and gender. And this will catalyze new agendas for research. Um, and for things that would otherwise be unnecessary and unthinkable. And the decoupling of sex and procreation has given rise to a shadowy surrogacy industry that often leads to legal quagmires domestically and to the exploitation and virtual, virtual servitude of poor women abroad. Of course, all of this will have an enormous impact on the future shape of society 
on whether and to what extent our children's children live under some sort of technocratic totalitarianism. And it will have a profoundly existential effect on those conceived by these means. If the stories from donor-conceived children at Alana Newman's Anonymous Us Project are any indication, the existential questions are very painful indeed. And they only grow worse as these adult children are told by a culture hostile to their questions that they should shut up and be grateful. ARTs thus provoke fundamental questions. Questions about human identity and human origins, questions about motherhood, fatherhood, questions about the human body and human nature itself, questions about the nature of the family and its place within modern technological society, questions which cannot and will not be suppressed. And the fact that this technology implicates us in matters of such profundity compels us to, to consider two further questions that go well beyond the usual moral question of the use or the misuse of these technologies. First, whether in saying yes to ARTs, our, our culture has already answered these questions in favor of a new, unprecedented, and ultimately post-human vision of human nature. And second, whether at the heart of this technology and this view of life, there is a violence that harms those who succeed by it as well as those who fail by it, and it contradicts the love we have for our children. My thesis tonight is that the answer to these questions is yes, that at the heart of ARTs there lies a hidden act of violence against both the parents and the children conceived by these means, and ultimately against the foundations of human society itself. Now, there is obviously a difference between a married couple who resort to ARTs in desperation as a remedy for infertility and some of the more radical combinations now emerging. And the extent and gravity of this violence grows the further one departs from marriage and natural procreation. Even so, the church teaches, and I want to maintain, that the problem with ARTs is not just extrinsic. It's not just a matter of external consequences in society that we could somehow prevent through better regulation but is rather a matter of the intrinsic violation of the dignity of all persons involved. ARTs are intrinsically violent because they are premised upon an ontological lie, a lie about who and what the human person are. To understand the nature of this lie, we must take recourse to a distinction that has mostly fallen out of use, but is as old as philosophy itself. This is the distinction between nature and art, the born and the made encapsulated in the famous saying of Aristotle and the scholastics, art imitates nature. The difference between them is indicated by this verb imitates, which has both a positive and a negative sense. In its positive sense, it means that artifacts in their rational organization, in their indirectedness, in their semi-permanence, and even in their beauty, can serve as analogies for understanding nature more deeply. There is a long tradi tradition of this, and it seems endemic to the human condition that we understand ourselves in the image of our artifacts. This is truer now than it has ever been, despite our secular aversion to hints of design in nature. Negatively speaking, to say that art imitates nature is to say that a natural thing, which for Aristotle means primarily a living thing, has something that an artifact lacks, or better, is something that an artifact is not. 
a natural thing, according to Aristotle, is characterized by entelechia, by having, or rather being, its own end, its own project. An artifact, by contrast, is not an end in itself. Its end or purpose is imposed upon it from the outside and bears only an accidental relationship to the stuff from which it is made. An artifact's project is not its own, but its makers. Thus, Aristotle and Aquinas both say, quote, we are the end of artificial things, end quote. The difference between being one's own end and not translates into a difference in the kind of unity and organization which each sort of thing exhibits. A living thing from the beginning of its existence is a genuine whole, what the scholastics would call a per se unity, whose being is both simultaneous, given all at once, and successive, unfolding in time. It remains existentially indivisible, so long as it is the being that it is, despite its growth in time and the constant recycling of its matter. And to just this extent, its unity transcends and thus ontologically precedes the development of its parts in time. This is why we can ascribe a history of development to an organism and say, for example, that I was once a blastocyst. An organism, as Kant put it, is both cause and effect of itself. Its parts develop for the sake of and by means of each other as the parts of the organism whose parts they are. The unity of an artifact, by contrast, is simply a unity of aggregation and organization which binds together otherwise independent parts in an accidental relationship, though this organization can quite obviously be complex. But an artifact does not ontologically proceed and transcend its, its parts except in the mind of its maker. Its unity, which also imitates the unity of a natural thing and oftentimes outlasts it, does not properly belong to it. Consequently, an artifact does not develop from the inside out as a living thing does. Rather, it comes about as a consequence of its piece-by-piece -piece assembly. Well, we can see from all of this that the distinction between nature and art signifies two radically different ways of being a thing, two different ways that things stand in relation to their own being. A living thing, though it has its being in an unsolicited gift, nevertheless possesses its being as its own, internally, as a subject. And so it moves itself from the inside out in the project of maintaining itself undivided, assimilating, to the world, assimilating the world to itself, growing, developing, repairing itself, and generating others like itself. An artifact, by contrast, has only an external or accidental relationship to its own being, and so is not really a subject of being in the same way. At best, it can merely imitate some of these activities, even though it can be designed in such a way as to exceed the capacities of its maker in some of them. The living thing is therefore characterized by an incommunicable interior, and thus a freedom that an artifact lacks which make it a surprise even to itself. I have become a question to myself, said St. Augustine. If this concept of interiority is hard to grasp, we can illustrate something of what we mean by it with the question of Thomas Nagel's famous essay, What is it like to be a bat? The question makes sense because a living thing like a bat has its own being and lives for itself. It occupies a unique and unrepeatable perspective within the cosmos that can never be transparent except to the mind of God.
It is like something, in other words, to be a living thing, even if we can never know what it is like. Whereas the question, what is it like to be an iPad, makes no real sense, because it's not like anything to be an iPad. Well, with the advent of modern science in the 17th century, traditional philosophy was overthrown, and this distinction between nature and art collapsed. There's a complex philosophical history to this that I won't go into tonight. But as a result, art would no longer, imi no longer imitate nature. Rather, nature would come to be conceived as artifice, manufactured at first by a deist god and later by history or natural selection. Well, with nature reduced to artifice, logos becomes technologos, the technological fusion of knowing and making announced in Bacon's famous formula, knowledge is power. And so knowledge of nature as that, that is now an artifact becomes itself a kind of engineering. We know nature by making it or unmaking it. But in this case, the truth of nature becomes precisely identical to the various forms of control we can now exercise over nature in our ability to predict sequences of cause and effect, or to successfully replicate experiments, or to manipulate nature for our own purposes. Well, if a natural thing is distinguished from an artifact by possessing its own being, which is the source of its unity and its interiority and its freedom, then we can see what the conflation, the collapse of nature into art amounts to. To conceive of nature as artifice is to reconceive the unity of an organism as a mere unity of organization and aggregation. It is to empty it of its interiority, to impinge upon its freedom, and to, and to instrumentalize its being. Because, of course, the being of, an, the, the end of our, we are the ends of artificial things. In essence, it is to deny that living things are their own projects and to make them our projects. John Dewey, the quintessentially American philosopher, would speak with perfect clarity for this view in the early 20th century when he said, quote, things are what they can do and what can be done with them, end quote. Well, now we come to the point. So much of the sexual revolution is really just the technological revolution turned on ourselves. Biology is not destiny, so the saying goes. Well, ARTs are the logical outworking of this deep-seated mechanistic or artificial view of human nature. They are this ontology in action, so to speak. Even in the best instances, the very act of removing conception from the body, manipulating embryos through IVF, ISCI, or assisted hatching, and the standard regime of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, genetic screening, embryo selection, treat embryonic life as if it were an artifact, as an aggregation of component parts to be controlled, selected, and worked upon. It's humanity presumably supervening only at some later point, either with the emergence of some essential characteristics or whenever we develop an emotional attachment to it. Again, this is not to impugn the motives of desperate would-be parents or to imply that they do not love their children. I do not suggest that they think of their children this way, though I imagine it's often necessary for the parents to adapt a detached or objectifying perspective just to keep this, their sanity in the course of submitting themselves to this regime. 
If I allowed myself to think that these were my children, it would be too much to bear. But the motives of parents are basically beside the point, which is that this mechanistic gaze upon life is built into the technique itself, irrespective of how I might think or feel about the embryos in the Petri dish. What we see here, then, is that this technology essentially forces parents, contrary to their love, contrary to their desire for their children, to become, in effect, the artisans of their children. And like the power of the one ring, this power is an, excru is an excruciating burden to bear, since it forces parents to make choices that are too big for them. And incidentally, by the way, this indicates, I think, frankly, how, how stupid our contemporary ideology of choice is, which we hear, obviously, in other areas. It utterly fails to grasp how choices limit freedom, the necessity of uh, at least as much as they expand it, um, the, uh, and how choosing itself, the necessity of choosing itself, imposes a burden. Even more ominous than making parents the artisans of their children is the fact that ARTs make the, si make the scientists whose growing body of expertise is built upon these techniques the artisans of future generations of children, a, bold, a burden shouldered much more lightly when unencumbered by the additional weight of love and responsibility. The power of the artisan over his product is essentially despotic in relation to incipient life even where it's exercised benevolently. For by treating the embryo as if it were an artifact, by treating them as our, proje as our projects rather than their own, this power instrumentalizes their being and thus does violence to what the child in its embryonic stages is. This violence is most evident while the child is still in its embryonic stage, where sadly, instrumental often means disposable. If pre-implantation diagnosis determines that the embryo is not what the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority in the UK calls quality, or if it happens to be a girl, or if it is just unlucky. And the point can never be made often enough that, that abortion, or at least embryocide, is an inherent feature of the standard ART regime of manufacturing, texting, and selecting embryos though I think the, the pro-life community is, is slow to speak about this. What arguably makes ARTs even more egregious than ordinary abortion in utero is that some of these persons are being manufactured in essence in order to be destroyed. Other dimensions of this violence are more subtle. Given the impossibility of gathering longitudinal data on the children conceived by these techniques prior to our actually conceiving them, Instrumental, for those who are allowed to live, means experimental, which is, of course, how evolutionary biologists more or less think of living things in the first place, as the accidental result of a long history of trial and error. We often lament the fact that ARTs lead to experimentation on embryos, but we lament too late. We need to think more deeply about the fact that the persons conceived through ARTs are already conceived and in a sense live their lives as experiments. Knowledge is power, you will remember. And the more penetrating our knowledge of the embryo's fitness, genetic makeup and propensities, the more complete is the power that will have already been exercised over him. This power is never absolute, to be sure. This is true even of what Hans Jonas calls dead matter engineering. 
Such products, once they are launched into the stream of time, often elude our control. Who would have thought that the iPad would take over the world? And it is more profoundly true in the case of bioengineering. Its deeds, says Jonas, are irrevocable. You cannot recall persons or scrap populations. Nevertheless, to be someone else's experiment, to have been selected for quality after careful testing and screening, is already to have been denied the freedom of being a surprise to oneself, well before we come to any second order level of experimentation. And it's precisely because these technologies already conceive of embryonic life as an artifact and as an experiment from the very beginning, and not simply because they are subsequently applied immorally later on, that it has led ineluctably to the warehousing of frozen embryos in a kind of limbo, to embryonic research, to eugenical fantasies of three parent embryos, germline manipulations, and other designs to better produce the living artifact in our image and according to our specifications. From within the view of life entailed in ARTs, there is really no rational way to oppose these further developments. Again, parents who resort to an ARTs intend none of this. They are not thinking of dominating nature or advancing our scientific expertise or seizing control of human evolution or any of that. They simply want a child and are blinded by desperation to the full meaning of this, of this deed. But inasmuch as the deed is ontological, inasmuch as it touches on the very nature and being of things, the very fabric of reality, its consequences are unavoidable. Reality will not forever go unavenged. And so I'm convinced that even parents who succeed in conceiving through IVF eventually often find themselves haunted in all sorts of ways by unanticipated anxiety. And it's an anxiety whose burden is quite unique. And it's the mirror image of what, for instance, donor-conceived children have to go to when they raise questions about their origin, very natural human questions. One can repent, for instance, of an abortion. But it's difficult to acknowledge the violence inherent in IVF without feeling at the same time that one is required to repent of what no parent should ever be asked to repent of, namely the child that she loves more than she loves herself. What parent would ever accept that? Faced then with the anguish that follows upon this, life can easily become a kind of rearguard action against having to bear the weight of this truth. Many donor-conceived children, as I suggest, attest to a similar experience from their side as they struggle with those very human questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why? The questions of origin that Margie talked about. Those are quite natural. Well, all of this suffering, and again, there's a lot of it, creates a massive inducement not to think deeply about who or and what, and what we are doing. Such questions cut too close to the heart. And this inducement to thoughtlessness is now enshrined into law by the Obergefell decision. Since so-called marriage equality must include a right to children, which can only be fulfilled through the use of ARTs, the invention of same-sex marriage elevates ARTs to an archetypal form of reproduction, 
equal or even superior to natural procreation. And this means then that from the point of view of the law, motherhood and fatherhood are abolished as natural realities, properly understood, and become mere accidents of biology overlaid with social conventions that can be replaced by functionally equivalent roles without loss. In other words, Obergefell effectively abolishes motherhood and fatherhood as natural realities given prior to law. All real relationships are now legal relationships. Everything will have to change to accommodate this new reality. It changes how we understand motherhood and fatherhood, procreation and family, even in their normative natural instances. After all, if the laboratory is a womb, then a womb is really a laboratory. We will have to change how we think and how we speak and what we teach our children and the meaning of right and wrong. And this is already happening, obviously, with breathtaking speed. Increasingly, living in America is like living in a communist country where you have to speak a public language that everyone knows is a lie and a private language of truth until, one, until the one infuses the other and you can no longer tell the difference, which happens over the course of generations. So we are building a culture or destroying one, depending on how you look at it, um, on the back of an ontological lie. And what all of this shows is that its parents are not the masters of this experiment, so much as they are themselves are subjects in a much larger social experiment. And so again, the issue is not really the subjective motives of those who, in their desperation, take recourse to these techniques. We can acknowledge with great sympathy the extraordinary suffering that tempts parents into using these technologies. We can affirm that they love their children. The issue is rather the object objective inner logic of ARTs and the understanding of the human person embodied within them. The deeper issue, in other words, is what the child is from the vantage point of these technologies. I have argued that from the point of view of ARTs and of the society which is recklessly riding the wave of, our, of ARTs toward a bleak eugenical future, that the person is an artifact, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes of our parents' creation, but in neither case really a person at all in the traditional sense. In which case the arrival of ARTs and their elevation to an archetypal form of reproduction represents the, the final triumph of art over nature and portends the triumph of technology over the human person. Thank you. Please join me in thanking our speakers this evening.